Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the sixth series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us and we'll explore the future of money, the rise of Pentecostalism, the disappearance of the human mind, the challenges facing journalism in the 21st century, the limits of science, and the relationship between science and religion, as well as the question of where does all the money go? In 2018, first on YouTube and then at the Second International Summit on Human Genome Editing, the Chinese biophysicist He Jiankui shocked the world by announcing that he had genetically modified the embryos of twin girls so that they would be resistant to a particular strain of HIV. Scientists reacted badly. Ethicists worse. Jiankui was heavily criticised and subsequently sentenced to three years in prison by the Chinese authorities. The affair cast a shadow over the extraordinary progress there's been over the last decade in genome editing. It's more than 20 years since Bill Clinton and Tony Blair heralded the decoding of the human genome, though that metaphor is both misleading and unhelpful. Since then, claims that we will shortly be capable of recreating or rewriting life have been repeatedly made. Jiankui's achievements, if they can be called that, all of a sudden made this claim seem credible. But if we do have the scientific wherewithal to rewrite life, and again, we need to be careful of the metaphor, do we not also need to have some idea of what life is for? And if we're faced with that question, how far can science provide an answer? Sheila Jasanov is Professor of Science and Technology Studies at Harvard Kennedy School and the author or editor of more than 15 books on the role of science and technology in law, politics and the policy of modern democracies. In this episode of Reading Our Times, we're going to be talking about one of them, entitled, Can Science Make Sense of Life? Sheila, welcome to Reading Our Times. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Now, I think we need to begin by mapping out some of the milestones or the landmarks of the genetic age. Most people will be familiar with the date of 1953, when Rosalind Franklin and James Watson and Francis Crick decode the double helix structure of DNA. But could you give us some of the other milestones in the subsequent 70 years that mark out the important moments of this genetic age? So it's really important that you call for different milestones because you're right that people instantly go back to one and then they act as if history just spooled automatically from that one moment onward. As you were saying, the first milestone is clearly 1953, but one has to fast forward to the 1970s when the technologies for moving pieces of DNA from one organism to another become possible. And that allows people to start thinking about building new genetic properties into organisms that in the state of nature would have developed differently. So in agriculture, for instance, you get the possibility of changing the way in which a fruit like a tomato might ripen. You also get the possibility of moving traits from one animal to another, thereby creating chimera or mixed entities, hybrid entities that could not have occurred in nature. But a second milestone is not so much the technical manipulation of the gene 
as discovering how genetic properties fit into the map, the genome that defines an organism, and the Human Genome Project, which takes a certain amount of time, approximately a decade from start to finish, that was a joint venture of the US and the UK and other national governments as well. That produced territorial identification of what humanity looks like in genetic terms. Although this wasn't a technique in, in itself, it also enabled us to see where properties are located in the human genome and opened up frontiers for medicine because you could now say, well, this is where the background causal factor for genetic inherited diseases lie. Mm. And then the particular further development that has everybody talking since around 2011-2012 is this CRISPR technology. Now CRISPR, it's also a form of genetic engineering, but it is infinitely quicker and cheaper. And unlike old genetic engineering, which required intervention at one particular site in the genome, CRISPR enables the genetic engineer or technologist to go into multiple sites at once. So if you have a multi-causal problem or condition that is located in the genes, you can actually imagine going in and intervening with corrective mechanisms at different points. So this then opens up a whole new palette of possibilities about the kinds of traits that can be engineered. So I think those three movements, genetic engineering, the mapping and sequencing of the human genome and the genomes of other organisms, and then CRISPR technology mm. are three milestones that are at least as important in this revolution or evolution, whatever you want to call it, mm. that we're seeing. That's very helpful. There's a narrative that sometimes runs around this debate, and indeed you discuss it at one point in your book, which says something like, effectively what we're doing now is no different from what humans have been doing since the agricultural revolution, you know, four or 5,000 years ago, only in a more controlled and focused way. In other words, modifying the genetic makeup of organisms, but doing so in a more controlled way. How credible is that narrative? I think that narrative is an oversimplification. I mean, of course, it's correct to say that humans have been modifying their environment ever since people became toolmakers and, and started breeding plants and animals. But in that slow process of agricultural breeding through human history, a thing that people lose sight of is that the thing being bred was always in a context. So, you know, you didn't just from one day to another make a new varietal of apple. You had to see that once you cut and spliced. I mean, of course, people did graft from one plant onto another and they saw what kinds of changes might happen. But once you did that, it was still in a context. You had to grow it in an orchard. You had to grow it in particular soil. Some things proved adaptable. Other things did not. People also transported organisms from one place to another. And again, sometimes they took hold and sometimes they didn't. But it was always in a much more complex ecological and also social context. It wasn't as precise and targeted. And the other thing that's important is that you couldn't hybridize anything and everything, right? I mean, some things would propagate if you crossed one species with another, 
but not everything would. Whereas with genetic technologies, it's in principle possible to take a trait like a growth hormone from a cow and insert it into a pig or something like that. I mean, so these kinds of alterations are just a light year difference from what normal farming and breeding over the centuries and millennia did beforehand. That point about context is also important with regard to the context in which the science occurs, isn't it? You make a point in your book about how if you scroll back a century or more, a lot of this science would be done in the field, as it were. Species would be observed in their wider context, whereas in the 20th century, we've shifted away from the field towards the laboratory and decontextualizing life in order to manipulate it. And that changes the perspective we have on it as well, doesn't it? It changes the perspective in a couple of different ways. And clearly, if you imagine Mr. Mendel with his little plots in his monastery, that was his laboratory. And he had to wait for the seasons and wait for his little pea plants to grow in a certain sense. Whereas now you can have something that's speeded up because you have test organisms. And in fact, you can model a disease in a dish. And that allows you to see within real time some of the um, the effects that you might be trying to, to induce. So all of that industrialization, of course, does create enormous efficiency benefits, but it also, as you say, decontextualizes. Part of the decontextualizing is the very location of the problem. So we know, for instance, that most diseases do not manifest themselves in exactly the same way in everybody. So you can have something like Huntington's disease, which is very well understood. It's a single genetic defect. But if a person is carrying that defective gene, it doesn't mean that they will get Huntington's at a very specific point in time. It doesn't mean that the evolution of the disease will be the same in every person. So even a trait that we know very well, like Down syndrome or Huntington's, these do not express themselves the same way within the same organism, the same human being. I mean, I think Down syndrome should induce humility in ourselves because it is a trait that some people, some parents, some prospective parents would really rather not have in their children. And the rate of abortions with detection of Down syndrome has risen markedly. And in some countries, children are not born with that condition very much anymore. But even in the 1990s, when I was looking at these issues for the first time, there were adoption societies that actually placed children with Downs who had been born. And and some people took care of them because they felt that their human condition was somehow improved. So humanity doesn't react to the same conditions in the same ways. And it is part of flourishing, I suppose, to choose what kind of human connections you will prize. But weeding out an undesired trait is not the same as choosing what kind of parent you want to be or what kind of child you want to raise. These are two different things. Mm. And this is right at the heart of your book, isn't it? The idea that to understand life, 
we have to understand what life is for. We have to understand it embedded in a wider social, linguistic, cultural, moral context. And the danger is by a singular focus on our capacity to manipulate genetic material, we lose that wider context of meaning. Is that a fair summary? That is an excellent summary, and one that I should borrow as a blurb for my book, and maybe I will from this podcast. If we know this is what life is, then surely we can manipulate it and also decide what the endpoints are. In that process of letting science, to some extent, set and steer the trajectory of what life is, we forget that out of many fields, out of law, which is my own field, and philosophy and religion and reflecting on society, people have created other values. They've come up with words like flourishing. I mean, what does flourishing mean if you transplant that word into a lab, most scientists would probably reject it as not being scientifically precise enough. Mm. And yet our vocabulary, our ways of thinking would be impoverished if we didn't have a vocabulary of flourishing. We want our children to flourish. And that is a different thing. Some people want their plants to flourish or their pets to flourish. And mm. this is something that is quite independent of the genetic trait that that we're talking about that determine skin color or eye color or some phenotypic appearance of the organism. Mm. Let me put a suggestion to you, which is that the tension here resides in teleology and the idea of ends or goals, by which I mean that if we want to know about flourishing, if you want to know about the good, you've got to have some idea of what your goal is. What is the what is your vision of flourishing? What is your understanding of the good? What goal you're trying to achieve? Whereas Science, and I guess in particular evolution and biology in the last 100 years or so, has resolutely disposed of the idea of teleology and just conceives of evolution as a directionless drift through genes and therefore is incapable of grasping the idea of ends. And that's where the tension resides. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. I think I'd put it in a slightly different way. I think that evolutionary biologists began to understand that evolution follows certain pathways and that there are complex factors that are determining what traits will be selected, which ones will be left behind, and that we have very little control over that process, we human beings, because nature is very complicated. So I think people have had a sense of, if not helplessness, then at least humility in the face of evolution. I think what these new technologies have done is give scientists at least more of a sense of control that we can actually direct evolution, even on a population-wide basis. So it's interesting that Jennifer Doudna, one of the Nobel laureates for the discovery of CRISPR technology, that the book she wrote is called A Crack in Creation. You were suggesting that people have lost sight of aims and goals, it seems to me if the developer of a technology is representing the technology as a crack in creation, there is a sense that the goals now lie in the laboratory. So not in the control of nature, but in our hands. And if you think about it, I mean, all of 
all world religions have had this sense that at some point the direction of our lives does not lie in our own hands. So I think this is a revolutionary moment in the life sciences and technologies, taking back a sense that not in thy hands, but in my hands. And in, mm-hmm. you know, so I think that is a, a very significant change in our ways of thinking about what can be done mm-hmm. with the life sciences and technologies. At the same time, there is a constant call to embed these capabilities that we have developed in wider legal democratic systems of accountability. How successful have they been? So I think that the the question of success in re-embedding the reduced genetic vision into law and policy is only partially successful because one has to ask whose vision is being embedded when all is said and done. At least in America, there's a very strong sense that the progress of science should not be deterred in any way because legitimately one can say that this is a form of human inquiry. It's even an expression of human soul that we're engaged with nature that we want to explore. And there are also feelings about freedom of speech and freedom of inquiry, and these should not be stopped in any way. But what one loses sight of is that it's not the inquiry that people are thinking of correcting or steering or directing, but it's the application of that inquiry into transforming and manipulating lives. And that line gets very easily blurred. So the question of ivory tower science, should pure science, pure inquiry, pure curiosity be allowed to thrive? I think nobody would say no to that. I mean, this is an expression of the human spirit. But increasingly, there are no gaps or barriers between the discovery and the application. Indeed, in most Western and most heavily industrialized societies, there's active government support for making sure that the discoveries get out into the world as soon as possible. So get things patented, get things applied, get industrial support. Today's young scientists are being valued on the basis of things like how many patents do they hold and are Mm. they successful in getting research grants. So the embedding is a two-way embedding. On the one hand, the doing of the science is embedded in a process of industrial production. On the other hand, we say, well, also the ethical concerns should be re-embedded. But to some degree, we've already charted the future before we do that ethical deliberation. We're already saying, let's develop this cure, let's develop that entity. I mean, to give a very concrete example, in America, Silicon Valley money is pouring into aging research. Now, in many parts of the world, it's more infant mortality that's a problem, and not how can you stay alive and hale and hearty between 90 and 120, right? So so when you consider that half of the wealth of the world is concentrated in Silicon Valley and that money is being directed towards aging research in significant fraction, it does make you wonder about the overall ethical system into Mm -hmm. which science is embedded. Mm. So the idea that you can just leave these discussions to Ivory Tower Academy, as you put it, or to industry and the market 
is simply pie in the sky, isn't it? Because ultimately, if you do that, and for a start, I mean, at one point you talk about the myth of science as institutional purity, and I think, I guess that's become more mythical in the last 30 years or so as the academy has got closer and closer to industry. But if our energies are directed by the market, by what might make a profit, by what certain wealthy nations and wealthy individuals within those nations want to achieve, the result is going to be greater inequity and um, misapplication of resources. Yeah, I think that there are some sort of stark points that one could make. If the directions in which science and technology evolve and the kinds of products that we get at the end of the day are being developed in wealthy countries, then almost systematically the problems of the non-wealthy countries will be disregarded. But I don't only mean to say, well, people in relatively poorer countries are suffering from maternal ill health and infant mortality. I mean, those things are easy to point to. But offsetting that are also concerns about what is the totality of human life going to be. I mean, so in a country like America, and I think the UK as well, where women's equality has reached a certain kind of position, you find that attitudes towards reproduction, sexuality, marriage, the family, these things are going in certain directions. Now, it's not obvious that this is something that tends to an overall progress for humanity. And in any case, it may not be the case that everybody values that line of evolution in exactly the same way. I mean, it could be that certain values that we have systematically, economically not prized, such as caretaking, work often done by women and the family, that these things, we would lose sight of what it even means. I mean, one could imagine a society utterly lacking in compassion because we have made it so easy for individuals to be individuals. I mean, maybe these technologies make us so perfected within ourselves that we are all incredibly smart and, you know, all able to fend for ourselves. Is it a society any longer? Mm. And, you know, I myself sit on an ethics committee at Harvard, and I've had these conversations with scientists and with other people trained in ethics and so on and so forth. And those interdisciplinary conversations are often fascinating because they end up changing people's minds. Whereas if you are sitting in a lab and part of a team and funded by a grant and have to write publishable papers at the end of the day, you often don't have those conversations and you can't because your own TLOS is then directed mm -hmm. toward your CV and you know what you're going to show in your lab group at the end of the week or at the end of the month and how many papers your lab is going to produce. So, mm. you know, I think a different set of conversations is needed parallel to and interwoven with the kinds of discussions going on in the laboratory. Yes. You make the point in the book, don't you, that there's often a call for legislators, lawyers to become more scientifically literate, but less of a call for scientists to become more legislatively or morally or democratically or politically aware of the context in which they are working. It really should be a two-way street, shouldn't it? It absolutely should be a two-way street. 
we've tried to correct for that to some extent by saying, well, everybody has to take an ethics module if they're funded by, in America, by a grant from the federal government. But it turns out that those ethics modules themselves become industrialized and the same canonical example is taught to everybody. And that's not the way ethics works. I mean, ethics isn't simply a pill that you take at the beginning or the end of the day to make you feel better morally about the things that you're doing. It's a sensibility point. It's like learning a language. and You don't learn a language by just internalizing its grammar. I mean, many of us, if you have the experience of more than one language in your life, you can point to a moment at which you became fluent in it. So it's that ability to sense, for instance, what law is about. It's not a set of rules written down on tablets. It's something that permeates your life so that you have a sense of the law going over and beyond what any particular piece of legislation says. And I think we systematically, through our educational systems, tend to weed out that sensibility, that possibility of always, for oneself, contextualizing one's work. I think we can do better at that. We can do better than just teaching them, you know, three courses of ethics at or three lectures in ethics at the end of their training period. Mm. Not least seeing as scientists are themselves human beings who live lives that are thoroughly embedded in a relational network. So it shouldn't exactly be alien to them, should it? It's absolutely the case that scientists have to deal with the same problems as all of the rest of us. And I find young scientists extremely well disposed to the view that their training ought to encompass more than just the work in the lab. But I do also think that serious change in the ways in which we think about progress has to come about. Progress isn't simply the newest technology that we can incorporate. A very homely example that I think everybody's aware of. I mean, we use software. We have no control over the next generation of the software. And I think if you take the number of curses that people have uttered when, you know, even Microsoft changes from one generation to the next, yes. uh, let alone all the other things. There are features of the old program that we come to value. We learn how to manipulate them. We learn how to exercise control over them. And then suddenly, bingo, the next day that feature has disappeared. Now, if you transpose that into genetics and what we're taking away, and what historicity, our own experience of other lives, our own lives meant, I mean, that's a big deal. I mean, that's mm -hmm. somebody actually removing things of value that you didn't even know you valued yes. until you didn't have them anymore. Yes. I'm interested in exploring the religious dynamic within this debate. You mentioned earlier how many religions have a conception of the human that is centred on the idea of gift, the idea that what we have is given to us, there is a built-in dependency to their conception of the human. And that can be in stark contrast and tension with a technocratic attitude to the human, whereby we understand more about reality, therefore we want to control it, and therefore progress is achieved by our ability to 
independently control reality, which is a very different understanding of what we're here for and can be a very different understanding of human nature itself. Is there an absolute tension in this whole debate between the religious conception and the, for want of a better word, the scientific conception? I mean, of course, religious conception is itself such a complicated idea because we're talking about religions of the world that are very varied in the way that they think about things. I think that science and technologically driven progress, if it were spiced with history, would regain a sense of humility about itself and then perhaps be more consonant with religion. But it's well to remember that religions have not been always so humble. I mean, many mm. religions have gone about conquering other religions because they thought that they knew the right telos. So in that sense, science and religion both have this property of believing that there is a morally right direction and that the control elements lie inside of them. And I think that one should perhaps think a little bit about where in each cultural domain, whether it's religion or science, there is an attempt to balance the arrogance of rightness with a humility about ignorance, about incompleteness. So mm. in the history of religion, of course, reform movements are often connected to those periods of reflection when the religion has become itself too autocratic in, in some ways, or at least its human manifestations have. So sometimes I talk about the 21st century needing to be a second enlightenment. And I think for me, that second enlightenment is caught up with the notion of humility. This is a humbling experience myself. When you write an article, you don't know what people are going to read and what they're mm. going to take away. I wrote an article in 2003 called Technologies of Humility, in which I did something maybe a little bit paradoxical. Technology, which is about control, coupled with humility in the same article title. And it has become not only my most cited article, but the one that people ask me to talk about the most. Mm. So it's as if in this highly controlling environment that we've created, there is this pent-up feeling that we need to think about humility as well. Mm. And the humbling experience for me is I wrote this article, but now I am constantly being asked to reflect on well, so what does humility mean as the decades go by and new technologies emerge? And I'm in the field of science and technology studies, so I need to follow these things. So coming into land, can you give us any examples of legislatures, of countries that are getting the balance right, this crucial balance between the control over life that is afforded by scientific progress and the necessary humility that needs to accompany it. Are there any countries where that balance is being struck successfully? You ask a question that's really dear to my heart because I'm one of the relatively few people in my field of science and technology studies who does comparative work for a living. And I've been studying these developments in at least Britain, Germany, and the US together side by side for a long time. Mm. And people are always asking me, so who does it best? 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I have to say, you know, this is a really difficult question to answer because best is itself an embedded term. And you have to say best in what respect and what particular. Britain has been extremely successful in getting buy-in for technological developments at the frontiers. I mean, some of the famous firsts, beginning with the birth of Louise Brown, the first test tube baby, so-called, happened in Mm. Britain and happened without a huge amount of social upset and so forth. And this is partly because Britain has a pretty long-standing tradition of consensus building around solutions that are perceived as commonsensical solutions. But what is the flip side? The flip side is that the common sense is often the common sense of the elite and not the common sense of the people at large. Mm -hmm. And this is something that in a society that has become increasingly diverse as Britain's has, one might ask, well, is the same common sense, the Oxbridge common sense, if we are allowed a bit of reductionism, right for everybody? Germany does one set of things differently and better than I think other countries, which is trying to get a diversity of voices into building consensus, but they do it in a fairly formalistic way. So one very concrete example is that when the German parliament wants advice on a matter, whether it's genetics or whether it's climate change or whatever the issue of the day is, they will construct an expert committee whose experts are appointed by the representation of the party in the parliament. So if you have 5% of the representatives, you may appoint 5% of the experts. Mm. What this does is ensure that even in the expert or the scientific debate, there will be an embedding back into a set of societal values. Mm. In America, we have decided that facticity is possible And you can resolve any dispute by seeking the right facts. And this has led to much more research on the way things work sometimes than in other countries. So take an issue, almost any issue that is in debate, whether it's climate change or whether it's mRNA vaccines and their efficacy, and you will find in the American public domain a lot of fact-finding and a lot of deliberation about where the weaknesses in a factual argument are. But Mm. we do that at the expense of being able to make any decisions at all, because you can quarrel about the facts forever. And therefore, if you just look at the experience of incorporating new technologies into our lives, America is not a paradigm society for success. But then maybe it's a better thing to quarrel for a long time and not Mm -hmm. arrive at a consensus position quickly, as one can do more easily in Britain and Germany. And maybe this Mm -hmm. loops us back into science. I mean, science, to some degree, propagates the model of a one-world society, a one-size-fits-all, because now we know this was the first enlightenment. Turn to nature. Nature is the same for everybody. Learn Mm -hmm. it through science, and you will get the pathway forward. And I think what I'm trying to suggest is that that in itself is a kind of imperium, an empire of science setting the goals and devising the instruments. And we're better off muddling through, Mm. doing things in different ways 
making mistakes. Of course, we're going to make mistakes, but then so does science make mistakes. Mm. And this question of how we evolve with our knowledge, I mean, you can think of that as the new burden, the human burden of trying to understand what our own somewhat godlike powers are enabling us to do. Mm. The book is called Can Science Make Sense of Life? Sheila Jasanoff, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. Thank you very much, Nick. It was a real pleasure being here. Next week, I'll be speaking to the former editor of The Guardian, Alan Rusbridger, about his book on the future of journalism. I think large swathes of the British press have forgotten about the supremacy of news. Unblemished, unvarnished, unprejudiced news. And they're more interested in using their front pages to tell you what to think. You've been listening to Reading Our Times from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger and our team includes Lizzie Harvey and Daniel Turner. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find all the episodes from this series and the previous series and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It'll help other people discover the podcast. 